I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. Solar energy has been on the market for decades, but as the business world increasingly turns its attention towards clean energy sources, we flip the switch for a conversation on solar power with an innovative company that's working to bring affordable solar to a commercial rooftop near you. So each building, even the ones in a very urban setting, has some role to play uh, in this ecosystem. That's Lars Norell, the co-founder and CEO of Altus Power, a clean energy concern that is revolutionizing the relationship of solar power in the commercial real estate world. And, full disclosure, Altus recently agreed to a business combination with a special purpose acquisition company sponsored by CBRE that will result in Altus being a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. CBRE has also formed a strategic partnership with Altus to bring clean energy solutions to CBRE's customers. We'll talk about Altus's unique idea and approach to solar, the role of clean energy across sectors, and new ways that companies are approaching their environmental footprint. Coming up, we shine a light on solar power. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we are delighted to be joined by Lars Norell, the CEO of Altus Power. Lars, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Spencer, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Well, we're delighted to have you. Today we're going to be talking about Altus and green power and all the great things that you do. So, Lars, uh, before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Altus and what you do? We are a clean electrification company. Uh, we've been around for 11 years, located in Connecticut, just north of New York. And all day long, we seek to uh, originate, place solar arrays on commercial rooftops and in commercial parking lots, and then sell the power that we make from those solar arrays at a discount back into the buildings that we're sitting on top of or next to. Uh, commercial real estate, of course, is one of the largest emitters of carbon um, about 40% of carbon dioxide emitted last year came from buildings, and our intention was from the beginning to turn that around and actually have commercial real estate be a generator uh, of clean, uh, clean energy instead of emitter. Well, Lars, you know, solar has been around for quite some time. Uh, why do you think it took so long to get to the commercial real estate sector? It's a good question. Uh, commercial real estate has not been a focal area of many of the large developers that have previously been in the space. This market really started uh, in the late 90s with Macquarie and some of the very large infrastructure funds. And what they were focused on uh, at the time was to build large solar arrays uh, out in the desert, very, very big ones. And then there was another group of people, some of whom were environmentalists and very focused on, on sort of being green, who started putting solar panels on rooftops, on residential rooftops. But the commercial space didn't really have a lot of proponents. And when we started looking at it in 2009, we looked at it and saw what amounted to a very, very nice asset from the perspective of having the cash flow come in. So what we do is we go to a commercial building and together with the tenant or the landlord or both, we sign a 25-year contract to sell clean energy at a discount uh, to what they pay the grid. And uh, the, the, uh, the clean benefits, of course, come along with that. And, and so that market had not yet had any proponents or real advocacy. We felt like this was, in fact, the best version of clean energy because unlike uh, utility-scale solar, the energy was being made where 
it is being consumed in the case of a commercial uh, building. And unlike residential solar, which of course is great, in commercial solar you can build much larger systems. Think the rooftop of a very big distribution center uh, or some data center or big college or hospital. There's a lot of room to put solar panels on. Uh, and so that attracted us to that market, even if it hadn't really grown uh, at that point. Now it's gotten a little bit bigger, but there's a lot of work to do. No doubt about it. And, and speaking of um, how the arrangement works, since you brought it up, Lars, you mentioned you went into a 25-year contract with the building owner or occupier. Um, how does that work? Who pays for the installation of the uh, solar panels themselves? And then how does the contract work thereafter? We pay for everything that has to do with the installation and the maintenance and the operation of the solar array. In the contract with the customer, whether it's the uh, occupier of the building or the landlord, is for us to sell the energy produced back into the building and we send them monthly bills, much like the utility would. But the beauty of that situation or the setup is that the client only pays for clean energy that they receive. And they don't really have to take any responsibility for managing the system or taking care of maintenance or insurance and, and other things. So if there's a bunch of cloudy days, that's your issue, not theirs. It is our issue if there's a bunch of cloudy days. And of course, there are places dispensers around the country that have more clouds than others. Um, funnily enough, a solar system on a commercial rooftop actually operates uh, in, in the cloudy weather as well. The efficiency goes down to about 20 or 30 percent, but it doesn't go to zero, thankfully. Now, if it's in the middle of the night, of course, there is no power being made. And so then you need something else that we've started installing, which is energy storage or large batteries. But let's talk about the types of real estate that are optimal for solar arrays and those that are more challenging. I grew up in uh, New York City, a dense urban environment, tall buildings. But then there's a lot of other buildings, uh, suburban buildings with larger rooftop, larger parking lots. What, what's an optimal building for you to be able to power the structure? There are two uh, elements to each parcel of real estate uh, that Altus Power focuses on. It is the potential of that building to act as a, a platform for a solar array. And to your, to your question, of course, the big distribution centers or big commercial buildings or, or offices even, up and down Interstate um, uh, 95 in New Jersey, where you have unobstructed acres upon acres of rooftops, is easier to install solar on for purposes of generating a lot of energy. But the second part of the equation is important too, which is what is the building's consumption of energy? In some of the buildings that you're talking about in New York City, while they can't really function as a good host for a solar array, they could be fantastic off-takers. And uh, interestingly enough, New York City, for example, or Con Edison, actually permits us to build solar arrays on rooftops in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or even in Westchester and then send that clean energy back into Manhattan for consumption in office buildings up and down Park Avenue. Um, so, so each building, even the ones in a very urban setting, has some role to play uh, in this ecosystem. The solar story, the solar panel story, uh, has obviously been evolving for decades, but they've gotten a lot cheaper recently. Uh, tell us about that. They have. Uh, and, and we get this question a lot. Uh, how much increases in efficiency have we seen during the decade that we've had Altus? Funnily enough, the solar panels that Jimmy Carter put on the White House uh, in the late 70s 
were about 12% efficient. That is to say, 12% of the photons or the sunlight that hit the surface of those solar panels was converted into electricity or electrons uh, that went into the White House, presumably. The solar panels that we're installing today are around 14.5% efficient. So in 30 years, efficiency, or even 35 years, efficiency has only gone up by like a tiny fraction of percentages. What has happened to your question is that the price of these solar panels have come down by about 95%. So the economic proposition of putting up solar in the late 70s or early 80s is very different uh, from what it is today. There are obviously dozens of different types of commercial real estate. Some use a tremendous amount of energy, like a hospital, um, like a data center. In fact, I read a statistic in The uh, Economist a couple of years ago, and this was like two, three years ago, that data centers use 7.5% of all the energy in the world. So clearly an enormous emitter. And um, so my question for you is, how much should a commercial real estate owner expect their energy usage from your system uh, to provide for their building, based upon the different type of building? It's based on a number of things. Uh, It's based on the activity in the building, of course. It's also based on the location of the building, because in the same exact footprint of a solar system, we make different amounts of energy if that footprint solar system is in Vermont or if it's in Hawaii. In Hawaii, uh, vis-a-vis Vermont almost has 2x uh, the amount of power produced. But for your run-of-the-mill office building or for your run-of-the-mill university, we knock out with a building-sited solar system about 60 to 70% of the energy consumed in that building. We can go to 100, but it's important to note that if you, for example, go to 100 in a northeastern state, if your average is 100 across the year, then obviously in Massachusetts, for example, there's a lot more solar electricity produced in May and June and July than there is in January and February. So you'll be overproducing energy in May, June and July while only producing perhaps 50 or 60% of the energy in December and January. Very few CFOs in our experience are okay to buy more energy than they consume during the summer months um, and so that makes us want to and, and be incentivized to size the system to the maximum production that you get to during the peak of the year. So producing 100% in May, June, and July means that on average across the year, you're probably more like at 60 or 70%. So that's been a guiding, a guiding light for us when we size these systems. Let's talk a little bit more about geography for just a moment. Um, in that very same Economist article, they were talking about how data centers might be moving north like far north, because a form of energy is cold itself. And so how much does geography play into it in terms of the diversity of the choices of electrical generation, uh, not just that you use or that you provide or that might be considered uh, by the building owner? I think geography, in, in, in our estimate, has had less to do with successful installation of solar than we would have thought when we started Altus. Um, And to give you one example, a solar array uh, that produces 100 units of electricity in Massachusetts may produce 150 or 160 units of electricity in Arizona. But power prices 
in Massachusetts are 200% higher uh, than they are in Arizona. So even though there's less energy made in Massachusetts, the value of the solar system is actually higher up north than it would be down south. Some locations in the country are really good for geothermal and drilling these wells for purposes of cooling or heating your building. Of course, in the case of data centers, it's all about cooling. Uh, to a large extent, depends on where you're located and what the soil is, where your building is, is based. Wind is tricky because very few building codes allow you to put windmills inside congested building zones. So we never really have to compete against wind because they're not allowed to build windmills <laughs> next to the highway or next to airports or next to commercial buildings. So we're to some extent, you know, the, the energy of choice if you want to reduce your carbon footprint. I think you bring up a really interesting point here about one of the limiting factors of whatever the electrical source may be, solar, wind, or otherwise, is the transmission. Just how much power do you lose per mile when something is transmitted? We know from experience that any time we've built a solar system that's more than you know, a quarter of a mile to half a mile away from the energy, uh, from where the energy is going to be consumed, you really tend to see drop-offs in the efficiency of that solar system and the amount of energy that we can deliver into the building. There's one uh, new uh, little twist uh, to the story, which we're also very happy about. It's been the case that when we make energy at a commercial building, it has to be consumed there and then, uh, or to some extent not be worth a lot. With the introduction of electrical vehicle chargers, that changes dramatically. Because we can now charge the vehicle of a staff member uh, of a tenant, or uh, the client, or a customer, or someone else. And when they've charged their car from the rooftop commercial solar system that we own and operate and sell energy at a discount from, they can take that car home. And so to some extent, you know, electrical vehicles are basically batteries on wheels, and it opens the door to having us deliver energy into a lot of homes that we've previously not been able to. Let's talk about that, because that's another one of your products, which is electrical charging stations for cars. So uh, obviously it goes hand in, in hand with what you're doing on rooftops. Tell us a little bit more about that part of your business and uh, how you uh, roll that out for your clients. It's not lost on us that a portion of Altus's value is this reduction of, of someone's carbon footprint to some extent. And while we don't want to lead with it, it goes into how we think about products. And electrical vehicle charging is one of those instances. We think that once a customer or a client has charged their electrical vehicle from an electrical vehicle charging station that's clearly and visibly connected to a solar array. It could be a carport canopy in a parking lot or a carport canopy in connection with a big roof-based system or some combination thereof. They're going to feel different about that energy that just got um, sent into their vehicle. They know it's green, it's clean, and it came delivered directly from the parking lot where they were parked or the roof over the building um, where they were working or, or shopping or whatever the case might be. We think people are going to make a distinction between having their vehicle charged that way or just having it charged with brown power that they don't really know where it came from. 
Well, that, that's really cool, uh, it, particularly if they could not just charge it there but bring it home with them as an amenity. We're always looking for what we call differentiated product uh, with respect to the office sector, and that's clearly a differentiating point uh, if they can bring uh, that power home. Um, but speaking of home, let's go back to the geography question. You mentioned that your best friend, I, I suppose, maybe this is a weird way of looking at it, is a high-priced power state because you're more competitive by comparison. But I imagine there are still some state and federal incentives available uh, for the use of your product. Are, they, are those still uh, a big piece of the equation? I know they've gotten smaller over time. It's a great question. And we suspect that uh, governments across the world all have reached a point of you know, deciding that they need to make actual changes to the way energy is extracted, produced, and then delivered. Uh, whether it's into cars or, or buildings or businesses. And so um, the U.S. Uh, was perhaps a little bit late to that particular game on the federal level, but some decade ago when we started Altus, there was the investment tax credit. Um, there's, by the way, an investment tax credit in all kinds of energy investing, not only clean energy, but there was definitely uh, investment tax credits available for uh, investing into solar and wind. And then you had state-based programs that also sought to encourage the development of, of solar, for example. The investment tax credit has ratcheted down. It's no longer the percentage, the 30% that it used to be. It's less now. And in many cases, state programs have disappeared altogether. We're completely okay with that. The reduction in cost of solar panels has offset the lack of those incentives and the incentives, we believe, were always meant to kickstart this industry. And it's our observation that it served its purpose. It really did kickstart the industry. And we're, for example, in California um, or in Georgia, totally happy to build solar without any state incentives at all. The relationship between the power prices that we, to some extent, like you're saying, compete against, and the amount of sunshine available in those states, and the cost for us to install a roof-based or carport system mean that we can still get an acceptable rate of return to our investors and deliver savings to customers in doing it without having any state incentives uh, in place at all. The Europeans are way ahead of the Americans when it comes to um, the uh, demanding uh, green power and green other initiatives. So my question for you is, Lars, what's your footprint look like in the United States today? And what's your thoughts about expanding internationally? Absolutely. We are very focused on delivering for all our clients uh, in the U.S. and then North America. And what we've always said is that we will follow those clients into other states as and when it's appropriate to do so. We want to make sure that we grow the company in a sensible manner. And we've had the, uh, the fortune of, of being you know, EBITDA positive for the last uh, couple of years. And staying with that theme, we think we're going to sort of grow in the United States uh, first and then come with our clients and see Barry's clients into international uh, areas uh, following that. And Lars, I know you're limited um, uh, to some degree by what you can say about the transaction with CBRE, but since you've opened the door talking about um, the new partnership with CBRE, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um, we've for the longest time, uh, been of the opinion that it's important that we build a really strong platform at Altus, basically so that we can deliver value uh, to, to clients. And value, we think, again, is a discount on their power price and the clean benefits that come with having um, a solar array on, on your roof or in your parking lot. Blackstone, 
very early on in 2014, when Altus was only four years old or four and a half years old, agreed with our assessment that this was going to be uh, an important market and an important asset class. And the one question they had for us is, can you scale this? Can you really make it big? And we've worked very hard uh, to show Blackstone uh, and succeeded, thankfully, in how to scale this, uh, not the least of which uh, has been all the buildings that Blackstone owns and operates. But the real answer to the scaling question came in the form of CBRE's interest. If you're a company that's looking to put solar on rooftops, there is probably no better entity on the planet to partner up with than CBRE. Because CBRE manages 7 billion square feet of real estate and hundreds and thousands or hundreds of thousands of rooftops, not only in in this country, but to your point about international, internationally as well. And it's interesting, Spencer, from CBRE's perspective, which was communicated to us when we met, they view this exact topic from the opposite direction, which is their clients are coming to them saying, we have a carbon emission problem and we need to act on it. We need to do something about it, and we don't have a budget to do it, we don't really have a way to do it, we don't know how to do it, and we'd like to act, as we always do, with partners who are industrial strength. So to them, we look like a solution, and for us, of course, they look like a market that's got you know insatiable demand for our product and services. And so once we met CBRE, uh, or the SPAC sponsored by CBRE, we really stopped talking to everyone else. Um, and focused only on the combination with this particular spec. Well, you know, green and, and then more broadly, ESG, social governance, these things are, are going up exponentially today, and not just from our European clients uh, and not just in office. We're seeing it, I, I think, even faster right now in industrial and retail, two asset types which uh, historically had lagged office in terms of uh, the green technologies uh, that they'd use. Are you seeing something similar? Yes. We think stores in particular are looking for all kinds of ways to make sure that they remain relevant uh, to their clients and and customers. And they are effectively stations of commerce, right? And commerce continues to go on and will continue to go on and grow. And uh, for the retail uh, outlets and stores to also serve their customers with clean energy and a promise of a lower impact way of having goods and services delivered into customers, we think is very important. And we think this is like low-hanging fruit for, for many of those retail institutions to um, effectively equip or let us equip, together with CBRE, um, their real estate uh, locations and stores with uh, roof-based energy and EV charging in, in the parking lot. So the customers can actually buy some energy from them that's clean and take it with them home and, and let the home run off of that as well. Let me ask you a CapEx, a capital expenditure question for a moment. So uh, I think you had me at a low with the amount of savings you can get from these solar panels once they're installed on your roof. But a lot of the buildings that are looking to do this might be older buildings, and they might not have a roof that's strong enough. What do you do in that case? We are able to design the economic package to include uh, for the customer or the building owner an upfront payment in most cases and let that upfront payment go to rehabbing the roof prior to the installation of the solar system. It's a big problem. A lot of buildings that are otherwise very suitable to our solar or building-based solar solution, they might be located in a state with a lot of sunshine, very healthy rebates, or with very high power prices, or all of the above, may not have a roof 
that would uh, last for long enough to have a solar system gain economic advantages. So what we do then is we'll take some of the expected ongoing power savings, or in the case of a building owner, some of the ongoing lease payments that Altus makes to the landlord, and instead convert that into an upfront amount of money that we can spend on redoing the roof for the clients and recertifying it to last for the full contract period of the solar and leave the customer with both the potential for energy savings going forward and a new roof, which is obviously a very popular solution. The pandemic clearly uh, accelerated so many trends, um, some positive, some negative, about the movement of people, about the need for wellness, the need for green. Uh, Tell us how it impacted your business and how you think it will impact it long term. Absolutely. We have a lot of uh, corporate customers. We also have a lot of community solar customers. We haven't spoken about that yet, but community solar, just just briefly, is the um, combination of large building-based or ground-based commercial solar arrays. But instead of selling the power back into that building, we sell the power to households in the same load zone. So one solar system may serve 800 or 1,000 homes with clean energy, that the utility allows us to send you know, through the grid or through the wires to those homes. All those uh, customers, both the commercial and the residential, we um, anticipated that perhaps there was gonna be some issues with respect to energy demand or consumption or, or bill paying. And not a single one missed payment of a single bill. All of them paid on time. And we were very careful to continue our outreach effort and talk to schools and hospitals and universities and commercial entities. And all of them were humming along, some with reduced activity, but none of them, even the ones with reduced activity, wanted to reduce their purchase of clean energy. This was a good stress test for that model. And and for the moment, knock on wood, uh, it's been passed very well. In the face of global warming and other threats that we're seeing, forest fires, whatever you want to call it, uh, isn't your product something that can make us more resilient? Yes, It absolutely can. Uh, If you combine solar with storage, you have an independent means of generating and storing energy that even if the grid were to go down, can function to keep you in operation or your home heated or cooled or uh, computers and refrigerators running. And resiliency is something that our clients are super focused on uh, all of a sudden. And that's another good use case for energy storage or batteries. It provides, in many cases, backup power that can operate uh, regardless of whether the grid is up or down. And it's important to highlight, Spencer, that the length of resiliency and the usefulness of solar as a backup source of power, of course, depends on uh, a number of factors. For example, in Texas, if in fact a ice storm were to bring down the grid and this ice storm continues to, to, to rage, then there's not that much power you're going to be able to get out of your solar system for that particular moment in time. If you have energy storage or battery, that will certainly help, even in the case of an ice storm. And the only question to make sure that you consider is how long do you want this resiliency to last you? And what capacity would you like to continue to operate at? If you're a normal homeowner and you have a normal energy storage battery from Tesla or, or someone else, If you want to run your house at full capacity, that particular battery will only last for about half a day unless you oversize the installation. If, however, 
What you really want to do is to run your refrigerator, keep your cell phones charged, and have some other limited use of energy. Then you can go for weeks. Uh, and so it goes into the equation when you consider the sizing of these components. But we think that more and more people are going to use the resiliency demand as a reason to look at solar. And in some cases, frankly, Spencer, be prepared to have solar and storage installed even without the saving, where what they really want is energy maybe at the same cost as the grid provides, but they want the energy to be in their control, where they can actually run the system and use it during rolling brownouts as they've been threatening to have in in the West Coast uh, for, for weeks now. And so we think that makes the use case for clean energy and storage coupled together very strong. We're just about to wrap up, but let me play a little bit of a what-if game with you because I like science fiction. And a lot of the science fiction we saw from the 19th century, whether it was Jules Verne and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it came to pass, uh, and other things like that. Uh, We haven't seen our flying cars yet uh, from the Jerry Lewis movie from the 50s, but uh, they're coming too. Um, But there are other forms of power out there uh, that may form a a type of competition for you. Do any of these uh, potential power sources uh, concern you, uh, or are they complementary to what uh, you provide? Great question. Uh, And I also read, uh, I think, most of Jules Verne's books, and I loved every one of them. I think that most of the time, Altus and Altus's clients are the beneficiaries of technological development. If somebody comes up with cold fusion tomorrow, just to go there, and that is uh, just to remind everyone, at least my understanding of cold fusion is, you know, basically creating a a reactor for power out of water, uh, more or less, (laughs) or two tanks of water. If that were to come and make boundless amounts of energy, I think we'd all be better off. We're gonna be focused then on, on making sure that we build good batteries to store that energy and good EV chargers, and perhaps somebody's still gonna want the solar system just for the looks of it. So we're not terribly worried about that. We've attempted to create Altus in a way where we and our customers will benefit from technological development. And it's hard to know where it's gonna come from, speaking of flying cars and and other interesting things. One more final question. Uh, What do you say to people that are still skeptical? What do you say to people that are saying, well, you know, I like the old ways. how do you get them over the hump? It's interesting. When I speak to my children, um, they, they need no explanation. They are immediately asking us, why isn't everyone using solar power on their buildings? I think the opposition or the skepticism comes from more established sectors um, that frankly are a little nervous about change. And I get it. Change, change is sometimes difficult and it hurts a little bit and it sort of un, undoes um, certain structures that have been put in place or or been in place for a long time. It's useful, I think, when talking to those folks to open the aperture a little bit and to look at this in the longer term perspective. Energy for eons of human history used to be produced where it was consumed. We're not actually creating all that much new here. We're just going back a little bit to something that's been the way energy has been produced and consumed for most of human history. And we're doing it in a way that doesn't take the building off the grid. We're doing it together with the utilities. We don't really think that this is against any of the utilities. In fact, 
producing clean energy inside the congestion zone, that is to say where it's difficult to deliver energy, helps the utilities. Um, so if you can find any of the doubters or skeptical um, participants, then please reach out to me and I'd be happy to talk them through this. Lars Norell, the CEO of Altus Power. Lars, well done. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. For more on the topic of solar power and our show, check out cbre.com slash The Weekly Take. You can also drop us a note with your feedback. And whether you stream the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or another platform, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. For now, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.